gentlemen. So, right. very quickly, I've, I've just, you can see there's this fantastic presentation, and I've blanked it, right, because I want you to look at me and Jeremy, rather than look at the screen. Very, very simple. We can make it a white screen if you like, but that's, you know, so what in the world are we going to, you know. So, I'd like to introduce Jeremy, Jeremy Prescott. Um, Ex-military, a man who uh, we have sort of shared, not experiences, but shared areas that we've, we've uh, been to in the past. Um, we're both in the Middle East, and both have been amazed that we've been in parties or other places, and people have talked about the five-star hotels in Salala. And we were there at different ages, different times. Um, and I was there when uh, it was RAF Salala, and we were working in the desert, and we do lots to get the two beds that were available for us. Um, so five-star hotels, etc., was something that we actually knew nothing about in that area. And so perhaps Jeremy come back in, in, a, uh, in a year or two to talk about the Dofar and yeah. Oman, Oman. Yeah. and the the, um, the conflict that was there at that time. Um, and there was also, I forget, well, it goes with age now. Who, who was the, Ralph Fiennes? Fiennes? Yeah. Yep, Ralph Fiennes. He was there at that time doing that sort of thing. So um, it would be an interesting insight into what was going on, um, certainly in the, in the 50s and 60s in the Middle East. But tonight, we're not. We're talking about something very different. We're talking about Steve Biko. You may recall that last September, uh, we had somebody that came and talked about his, his experiences being the vicar, well, not the vicar, the padre, the parson, whatever terminology there is, uh, of Mandela, or Mandela, or Mandela. <coughs> and we felt that um, talking about Steve Beaker would be an interesting follow-on, which is why <coughs> this evening Thank you. we have Jeremy. And so I'll give you back your thank you. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me tonight and for the lovely curry, which I thoroughly enjoyed. A bit hot, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. I'm often asked why I'm talking about Steve Beaker, because of all the subjects I talk about, this is probably the least well known. Well, I have a confession to make. I uh, left school at the age of 19 and I took a gap year and a half and I went to South Africa in the days of darkest apartheid in 1969. And I worked there, and I didn't actually uh, reject apartheid, I just accepted it. And it's always preyed on my conscience, that particular aspect. And I hope tonight I will set the record straight to give the other side of the story. Well, this pr uh, presentation comes under the Sacrifice and Remembrance umbrella. This is the first presentation I developed in 2014. 
uh, to help communities in their own commemoration of the 100th anniversary of World War I. And this particular presentation, where the project has now taken its title from, is about the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and how we remember the 1.7 million killed in two world wars. And from interest from audiences, I developed 13 other presentations, all to do with sacrifice and remembrance. And my latest presentation, which I'm currently working on, is Britain's Secret War, Dauphin Oman. Now, in none of these presentations do I talk about the rights and wrongs of going to war. I leave that to historians like Max Hastings, who are much better qualified to talk about that aspect than I am. I suppose if I have any credentials for giving these talks, I was an army officer for 26 years. Sadly, I have seen sacrifice at first hand, and I strongly believe that if we are to send our young men and women to war, we should remember the sacrifice that they made so we enjoy the freedom that we now have. I've given this project several aims. The first aim is to raise awareness, uh, particularly uh, to make sure the torch of remembrance passes from the generation on the right to the generation on the left. To date, I've given 445 presentations to over 15,000 people. Another aim is to reinstate memorials. If I come across a memorial that has fallen into disrepair or a name has been omitted, I will do my best to reconstitute it. Here is an example. The Stock Exchange. A vast memorial of marble, 600 names, of those in the Stock Exchange who went to war in the Boer War and two world wars never to return. Well, in the 70s, that building was demolished. They moved to new premises at Paternoster Square at St Paul's. <coughs> And obviously, that vast memorial couldn't go with them. It was then placed in a stonemason's in London, and effectively, the names were forgotten. Well, I was approached by a lady in Leicestershire who asked me to help her do something about it. Well, it took four years of letters, emails, meetings with the Stock Exchange, and I'm pleased to say, in 2017, they commissioned a totally new memorial to commemorate those 600 names, which is now on the outside of the building at Paternoster Square. <coughs> on a slightly smaller scale, wooden crosses. In World War I, when someone was killed, to mark the grave, they placed a wooden cross to make sure the details and the grave was marked. And when they established more substantial headstones, these wooden crosses were returned to the relatives of the next of kin, and you'll find many in churches across our land. Well, again, I came across a wooden cross in a vestry in a church in Leicestershire. They obviously had no idea the significance of that wooden cross, and today it is now displayed in a more prominent position. Funnily enough, that wooden cross belongs to, in, in memory, Second Lieutenant Fellows, who's a distant relative of the author, Fellows of Downton Abbey. The next aim, and I particularly like this aim, is to assist relatives uh, see the headstones of loved ones who have been killed in action overseas. And through the help of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission website, 
the Wargraves Photographic Project, which is a local project, I'm able to produce images of headstones in far-off lands. And here are just a few examples of the images I've been able to get hold of to show uh, next of kin. This particular one is quite a moving story. I gave a presentation in Hythe in the New Forest of W.Y. And a lady came up to me at the end and said that her father was killed in El Alamein. He was an RSM. She returned from school aged eight and her mother broke the news and she said it was the saddest day of her life. Well, producing images like this to those relatives in many ways closed a chapter in an open book that had been gnawing at them since they were children. The last aim is to uh, raise money for combat stress. I do these presentations entirely on a voluntary basis and any donations I receive I pass to Combat Stress, the Veterans Mental Health Charity. And believe you me, there's a real need for this charity. The recent pullout from Kabul within two weeks, many service personnel felt totally disillusioned that the sacrifice of their comrades had been in vain and the calls to the helpline to combat stress doubled shortly after that withdrawal. And to date, uh, this project has raised £25,000 to combat stress from the kindness of strangers. Well, let's get on to the Steve Biko story. This is a story not just about Steve Biko, but it's really the story about South Africa <coughs> as it moved from those dark days of apartheid to the rainbow nation as we know it today. And I hope giving a historical perspective will show you how Steve Biko embraced his rationale and his cause in making the country the rainbow nation. Well, the Dutch East India Company colonized Cape Town in the 1600s. And in the 1800s, the British, they colonized Cape Town. And that actually forced the Dutch East India Company to move out of Cape Town and go into the hinterlands. They did, the two didn't get on. And the great trek then took place into the uh, great Karoo and onwards. And here we have uh, the great trek going not just into the Orange Free State, but into Transvaal. And this battle, the Battle of Blood River, uh, where the Zulus attacked uh, a column of the Great Trek, the Afrikaans, well, the Afrikaans uh, created a, a significant victory against the Zulus, and that gave them a sort of justification that the land they were <coughs> travelling on belonged to them rather than the black African. South Africa has always had conflict. The Zulu War, 1879, the Battle of Vishendwala, Rourke's Drift. Then we go on to the Boer War, Spienkop in the Boer War. It's all <coughs> about territory. The Africans wanted the territory, the Afrikaans wanted the territory, we wanted the territory. Well, the Union of South Africa was formed between 1910 and 1961. And the Prime Minister Milan he was really the architect of separate development 
or could you could call it apartheid. He developed the Bantu stones. These uh, coloured areas of Bantu stones where the blacks were told this is where they were to live, leaving the rest to the white population. The problem with that was 20% of the population controlled 80% of the land. They had little access to seaports and minerals. And one of the, the awful things, apart from the Bantu stones, was the creation of petty apartheid. The black South Africans <coughs> were treated as inferior. They were not to mix with the whites, white areas on the beaches, in shops, staircases in a railway station. But probably the worst aspect of uh, petty apartheid was the pass laws. Every black South African had to carry a pass. And if, if he was found without a pass, he was arrested. And they were not allowed to live in white areas. And it was slightly, that is slight irony, because the whites were quite happy uh, to have the black population bring up their children but the black Africans were not allowed to live in white areas. Sharpville, the 21st of March 1960, caused horrific uh, news across the world when they heard about the Sharpville massacre. And the Sharpville massacre occurred in an African township and the reason the Africans uh, got into the state was they were objecting to the past laws. Those are the terrible statistics. 69 were killed, 150 wounded. And at an early age, this obviously affected Steve Biko, who was in his early 20s when this incident occurred. Well, these are the white leaders that eventually came up came onto the floor in South Africa. The vote, Forster, Botha and de Klerk. And this is a statement of Botha on the, on the 11th of May 1964. He was quite adamant that apartheid must continue and if it disappeared that would be the end of the white South African regime. South Africa was protected by other countries at this time. Angola, a Portuguese colony. The Portuguese eventually withdrew after the Angolan War of Independence and the country was then turned over to the black Angolans. Mozambique, another Portuguese colony and we had the Mozambique War of Independence. Again, uh, the Portuguese withdrew from Mozambique. And the last uh, uh, bastion which was shielding South Africa was Rhodesia. The Zimbabwean War of Liberation between 1964 and 1979. And the shield to South Africa from the rest of black Africa had disappeared. They were on their own. And that movement changed Botha's idea. He said there are only two options, to adapt <coughs> or die. Well, the white South Africans 
tried to behead the ANC and they arrested the eight leaders to get them out of the system. And they had the Ravona trial in October 63 to June 1964. And one of those held was the lawyer, Nelson Mandela, who made this moving comment during that trial. It is an ideal for which I hope to live for and to see realised. But my Lord, if it needs to be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Well, those eight were found guilty and they were sent to Robin Island off Cape Town. And Robin Island was a high security prison, a couple of hundred people in that prison, terrible conditions. This is Nelson Mandela's cell. They were made to work uh, hard labour, crushing stones for no apparent reason. Uh, the, the food apparently was balanced. It was unpalatable and inedible. That was the balance. Prisoners were allowed one visitor a year for 30 minutes and two letters a year where they were allowed to write and receive. Well, this situation of the ANC leadership being placed in Robben Island gave Steve Biko the chance to rise up himself and carry the torch. And here we have Steve Biko in the absence of that leadership leading the ANC on in their journey to eventually get the Rainbow Nation. He came from a not an impoverished family. He was well educated. He got himself through his own endeavours into a boarding school. His brother also went to that boarding school and was uh, expelled along with Steve Biko for their active uh, activism against the whites. He then managed to secure him, uh, himself at another boarding school in Natal and through his own endeavours he managed to get himself into the Natal Medical School and here we have Steve Biko <coughs> at that medical school. He only lasted a year there because his activism rather overshadows his academic studies. And what really forced the issue uh, with Steve Biko, that when he was at medical school, uh, he was invited to Rhodes University with some of his colleagues, and he checked into the university for his room and a bed, and the organisers turned round to him and said, sorry, there's no room for you, there's a church down the road and here are some blankets. And that really sparked in him, he must do something to address the situation and not to be treated as a second-class citizen. As I said, he let all these interests get in the way of his medical studies, and he opted out of medical studies to concentrate on these movements. And probably the most important to Steve Biko was the black consciousness movement. And this is what he said about the black conscious movement. He wanted the black South Africans to have pride, self-assertion, 
self-confidence, most importantly, non-violence, and equal opportunities for all, not just for the blacks, but for the whites as well. And at that time, those thoughts were quite revolutionary, because many people associated with the ANC and violence. He was totally against it. He uh, married Nasiki and had two children. He was a bit of a ladies' man, Steve Beaker, and he had a mistress, Mafella Ramfeli. And she was uh, an important person in her own right. She was vice-chancellor at one time of Cape Town University. Uh, she was a medical doctor. And a few years ago, she was voted as one of the most important influences in black South Africa. I actually emailed this presentation to uh, Manfella, and she gave me some guidance, and particularly talked to me about the black conscious movement. Well, South Africa had, was drawn to the attention of the world, and people started to object about apartheid. And outside the South African embassy, they had this ongoing demonstration, and they said they would demonstrate as long as Nelson Mandela remained in Robben Island. Sport was brought into the equation. Basil D'Oliveira, of Cape Coloured. He was selected for the England cricket team, but it was, it was apparent that the team could not <coughs> tour South Africa uh, having Cape Coloured in the team, so the tour was cancelled. Rugby, very close to the hearts of the white South Africans. And when the team, when the Springboks came uh, to play <coughs> our team, there were demonstrations uh, at Twickenham and other venues. And the leader of those demonstrations was Stop the 70s Tour, you probably recognise him, Peter Hayne, who later became a minister for Wales. Well, Soweto Rats was another fire that lit uh, the anti-apartheid movement. On the 16th of June, 1976, children paraded through Soweto, and they paraded that they demanded that they ceased learning Afrikaans. They wanted to be taught their own language in the schools. And here they are, hundreds of children demonstrating on the streets of Soweto. And that quickly turned into violence. And the South African police were known uh, for taking no prisoners. And 176 were killed, mainly children. And this iconic picture shows Hector Peterson, who was coming back from school. He was shot in the head. There is his sister, Antoinette Peterson, and he was picked up by Makubo and placed in a car and taken to the hospital. But by the time he got to hospital, Hector Peterson had died. And that image now remains in South Africa, in Soweto, to this uh, monument, to the struggle of those school children in the Soweto riots. The United Nations eventually brought in sanctions, Resolution 418, in November 1977. 
Steve Biko uh, managed to forge a relationship with Donald Woods, who was the editor of a newspaper in East London. And uh, Steve Biko uh, had this friendship and he wanted to use Donald Woods to put in his paper his thoughts about changing the apartheid. And they had a very close relationship. Steve Beaker at this time uh, received the banning order, which meant he couldn't leave his town uh, near East London because of his activities. But he decided with his friend Peter Jones uh, to break the ban in 1977 and travel to South Africa to meet this activist, Neville Alexander. They got there, but for some reason Neville Alexander wouldn't meet them. So they made the return journey from Cape Town to Grahamstown and then onward to King Williamstown. And when they got to uh, Grahamstown, there was a roadblock and the police arrested both of them. Steve Biko, shortly before that arrest, wrote this book. I write what I like. And in this book, one of the passages rather predicted his own demise. <clears throat> he didn't want violence, but he said, if you fight me, I'm going to have to fight you. And if it means me dying, then so be it. Well, he was taken to Walmart Police Station in Port Elizabeth for initial interrogation along with Peter Jones. He was then transferred uh, to the headquarters in Port Elizabeth of the South African Police. Room 619, and this is his cell, and this is the room where he was savagely beaten up, knocked around the head, he became unconscious, and for some extraordinary reason, the police didn't transfer him to a hospital in Port Elizabeth. They put Steve Biko naked in this Land Rover and drove him 600 miles uh, to a hospital in Pretoria. And within a few days, Steve Biko died. The South African police always insisted that he died from a hunger strike which was totally against Steve Biko's uh, concept. He died because he was hit round the head. Well, the world press soon latched on to the death of Steve Biko. And his, his doctors who uh, were at the post-mortem said there were no signs of a hunger strike. And there, at his <coughs> funeral, over 20,000 people uh, turned up for the funeral uh, near his hometown. And there you can see uh, the damage to Steve Biko's head from that beating in that police station. And this is a sign of the black conscious movement on his coffin. The inquest in November 1977 did not reveal anything. They insi kept insisting that uh, he died of a hunger strike. Well, Donald Woods came to the fore and published what he thought about the killing of Steve Biko. And he was given 
a banning order, forbidding him uh, to leave his house. Well, he had had enough, Donald Woods. He decided to escape. He dressed up as a priest and managed to get out of his house and he crossed this bridge to Lesotho. And the British High Commission uh, then engineered uh, his passage uh, to London and his family then followed shortly after. Donald Woods was one of the first individuals to address the United Nations, imploring them uh, to create sanctions uh, against South Africa. Peter Gabriel from Genesis wrote a, a very moving song about Biko in 1980 and these are the words, some of the words of that song. Once the flame begin to catch, the wind will blow it higher. You can never extinguish uh, the memory of Steve Biko. Well, the South Africans realised that the writing was on the wall. Nelson Mandela was transferred uh, from Robin Island to an open prison where he remained for six years. We then had the film uh, of uh, Biko and Donald Woods, Richard Attenborough, a very moving film about Steve Biko and his friendship with Donald Woods, Cry Freedom. <coughs> Nelson Mandela was then transferred to Victor Vesta prison where he spent a couple of years. It was not a prison, it was, a, uh, it was secure, but he had his own bungalow and he received repeated visits uh, from de Klerk in the lead up to his release, which came on the 11th of February, 1990. And there is de Klerk uh, with Nelson Mandela shortly after the release where Nelson Mandela addressed uh, the South Africans uh, from the council building in Cape Town. This is the uh, thoughts of de Klerk shortly after uh, the release of Nelson Mandela. And in 1993, both of them received the Nobel Peace Prize. I think we haven't given de Klerk enough congratulations for his final acceptance that apartheid could not continue. And it is only right that both of them received the Nobel Peace Prize. Well, that led to, on the 27th of April, 1994, to the first free elections in South Africa. You can just see the enthusiasm of the black South Africans for the first time they were allowed to vote for whoever they wished. The queues went on for hours. And here we have Nelson Mandela casting his ballot for the first time. He then wrote this iconic book, The Long Road to Freedom. The Long Walk to Freedom. And the South African flag then became known as this, the Rainbow Nation. And one of the most interesting things following that election was the establishment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was a commission 
led by Desmond Tutu, asking people to come forward, to acknowledge their crimes, to confess, to have some reconciliation and healing amongst the population. And I always thought, what a pity that we didn't do the same in Northern Ireland. To have a commission like this, where people could come forward to acknowledge their crimes and move forward. But it never happened. And here is one of the hearings at that commission. I think this is rather an apt cartoon, because if we don't find out what happened, it will keep on haunting, haunting us forever. Well, the five policemen involved in the death of Steve Biko, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission refused to give them amnesty. But in October 2003, no prosecution was affected because the statute of limitations had elapsed. Too much time had passed, so they were not convicted. How do we remember Steve Biko today? Well, there is a statue in his hometown, numerous murals, there's a Steve Biko Foundation, a Steve Biko Centre in King Williamstown, there's a hospital in Pretoria named after him, there's an annual Steve Biko Memorial Lecture at Vidvatarans University in Johannesburg, they have this annual conference in memory of Steve Biko. <coughs> This regiment in South African Army has been renamed the Steve Biko Artillery Regiment. And there is a memorial gardens uh, in King Williamstown where he is laid. And on the headstone are these words, One Anzania, One Nation. Well, sport played, ironically, an important part in the destruction of apartheid. But ironically, it forged the nation through sport. Here we have, um, I've forgotten his name, no? Francois Pinot. Sorry? Francois Pinot. Francois Pinot, thank you very much. Francois Pinot <laughs> at the World Cup <laughs> in Cape Town, receiving the, the, the World Cup from Nelson Mandela. And Nelson Mandela made that important step. He put on the Springbok jersey, which was an iconic symbol to the white South Africans. And he put that on to show solidarity with the white South Africans. A few years later, uh, in Paris, again, the South Africans lifted the World Cup. And then again, in Japan, they lifted it for the third time, the only country in the world to lift the Rugby World Cup three times, but most importantly of all, the captain was a black South African. Well, these are the, the, the recent leaders after Mandela, and sadly, they haven't lived up to the, uh, the example of Nelson Mandela. They were all corrupt, and even this chap, Ramaphosa, everyone thought they were having a new leader with new ideas, but recently he's been had up for corruption. Well, it's easy to criticise South Africa, but they have taken just small steps on a long journey. It's going to take time, 
and we must be patient. The South African people are wonderful, but they've been very let down very badly by their leaders. Violence is rife, AIDS is rife, unemployment is un unimaginable. Well, Donald Wood said Steve Biko, who died for the dream, and is Nelson Mandela, who made the dream come true. And Mandela said Biko was the spark that left the veld far across South Africa. I wonder what would have happened if Steve Biko hadn't been murdered by the South African police because he was a young chap. He had the intellect, the leadership, and the philosophy to lead the country forward in the mould of Nelson Mandela. Sadly, it was not to be. I'll leave you with these words of Steve Biko. It is better to die for an idea that will live than to live for an idea that will die. Nikosi Sikeli Africa. God bless Africa. Well, that concludes my story of the Steve Biko story. I'd just like to mention that I do raise money for combat stress. If anyone wishes to make a donation, there is a combat stress box at the front, and I'll be delighted to take any questions. Thank you. actually fell foul of the system. Um, I think he went into prison for a short time, but I'm not quite sure what's happened, but not on the same uh, level as uh, Steve. Uh, his mistress also had a child, uh, illegitimate, from Steve Beaker. Um, I'm not quite sure what's happened to him. Yeah. You're letting me off lightly here. <laughs> Too off. I'm trying to get to the heart of what it is about the man that was so revolutionary in his own way. What it was, what drove him. Uh, and that seems to me there's a backstory to this as well that we. we well, what, still drove, what drove, drove him was the inequality. The inequality. And how did that, and yes, I think my question is how did that cash out? For him, what was he an activist all the time? So what was well, the, 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 that episode when he was told to go into a different accommodation at Grahamstown University, he just wanted to be treated the same as the whites. He had the intellect to see that he was badly treated in the black conscience of the movement. He tried to instill that amongst the population that they shouldn't be frightened of the fact that they were black. <coughs> they should have equal opportunities with the whites. And many people felt oppressed. And the, the Sharpeville massacre, the Soweto massacre, must have had an enormous impact on those activists. The yes. schools that you went to looked very smart. Yeah. Were they private schools? Private were they schools. schools. Yeah, they were, were private they... schools. He got there on a scholarship. Right. But um, they were only for black kids, I suppose. Black and white. Oh, they must. Yeah, black and white, schools. but majority white. Ah. Which is quite interesting. Yes. That, um, so he was experiencing... He was experiencing up the other side. Of yeah. equality, yeah. inequality in his But school. he was lucky. He had the intellect to get there on a scholarship. Right. 
whereas many of the others just couldn't afford it. Thank you. Yes. The last school that he went to in Natal was at Marion Hill, and this was a Roman Catholic school, actually. Oh, right. Yes, yes. Thank you. <laughs> My wife and I went to South Africa in 1969, like you. Well, we probably met. We may have met, but... I was uh, a daughter to all salesmen. <laughs> we were out of a, a, an African area. Oh, right. I, I'd just like to say something about the banning order. Yeah. This sort of pernicious way in which anybody who spoke out to much... Were banned. They had to remain in the... So-called banned. Yeah. Under house arrest. Yeah. Not allowed to move from their locality. Correct. Uh, not allowed to meet more than one person at a time. Right, yeah. But uh, obviously a lot of black people were banned, but so too were a lot of people who were Indian, yeah, or yeah. coloured, yeah. or white, yeah. who were put under this terrible banning. Well, Donald Woods was banned. Yes, yes. The, same, the South African police were quite extreme in their, think, their views. I remember once I said I was a door-to-door -door salesman. I actually got myself into John Forster building which is the headquarters of the white South African police. I got in there to sell my wares. They found out what I was doing, and I was ejected <laughs> quite quickly when they found out I was a door-to-door salesman. Luckily, I didn't end up in a, in a cell. Yeah. Anyway. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's good to, to, to follow on from um, uh, the talk we had earlier. Um, I'm sure there is so much more as a backdrop to, to all of these things as well. Unfortunately, it's life has moved on yep. now. Um, I'm not sure that Mandela's view of equality for everybody actually works. I think it's gone the other way in, from what I can gather in South Africa. But, but um, no, thank you very much for the talk on, uh, on Steve Beaker.